Matt, Yusuf, and family, thank you so much uh, for being able to be here. And it's, we have a newborn. Life's a little bit different. Um, but I saw the pictures. I heard the feedback. It was phenomenal. I think it's, it's great. So I hope you guys got a great time. And again, yes, thank you to everybody who was on the security team uh, for sacrificing that time just to, just to hear about our church. Uh, we are in the middle of our series on Exodus, which we are calling Welcome to the New. And so if you haven't been here, let me just kind of set it up for you. If you haven't, have been here, I'm going to assume you probably don't remember everything that I've said for the last five weeks, so we'll kind of recap and get you guys all on the same page. With Exodus, what we're really looking at is this journey that the Israelites go from being in the land of oppression and slavery, and as they move from that, starting to follow God and move towards this promised land of abundance that God has promised. And so on the outset, why that is so important for you and I to pay attention to is that's the same journey we're on. We are sinners in a sinful world. We know the pain and the hurt of this earth that we live in. And God has come to us through his son, Jesus Christ, and he has offered us a new life. He's offered us a new way. And all of us are at some place in that journey from our old way of life to our new one, just like the people of God in the book of Exodus. And so as we watch this story unfold, as we watch these people, one, break free from the oppression, and then two, really analyze the journey they're on, I want you to see not one, just what God did for them, but two, looking and asking, where are you at with these lessons in your own lives? And so as we've been breaking down the series, there's been three key verses that we keep coming back to. We call these the keys of the series, and these three verses kind of set up a framework of how we should be thinking and analyzing our own lives and our own journey. The first is in Luke chapter 16, verse 13. It says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And again, you could just imagine money being replaced with any other word. You cannot serve God and anything else. As Christians, we have to choose if God is our master or he is not. What a lot of us try to do is actually just add God to our lives. A lot of us call ourselves Christians, but we have never actually made God our master. We've invited him to come participate and hang out with us. But we've never actually fallen on our knees and gone, God, you are my master. I am your servant. It is your will, not mine. As Christians, that is the first step you actually make, is that decision to say, I am part of your servant class, God, and I will do what you ask me to do. You're in charge. That's the first decision we have to make. The second is, is in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. We have to understand that once we make that transition, once you and I have put off the old and take on the new, we have to understand all our old ways of thinking don't make sense anymore. How we measure success, what we consider win and loss, what we look at as end goals, they don't make sense anymore. What is good in the kingdom of God often is not what is glorified in the world. And so because of that, we have to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and not lean on our own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Proverbs 3, 5-6. through 6. So God's point is, is once you've chosen to follow me, Understand that along that journey, not every direction I give you is going to make sense to you. In fact, often what God will ask you to do is going to make no logical sense to you. And it's going to be counter to what the world would encourage you to do. 
And so it's in those moments you must remember, hey, I said he's my master. And in this moment, I'm trusting in him. I'm not trusting in myself. That's where true faith comes in. And to be honest, this is where you start to see maturity as a Christian. All of us are fine to listen to God when we agree with him. The real struggle comes is when God comes to you and asks you to do something you have no desire to do. In those moments, how do you respond? In those moments where you are a complete opposite of what God is asking, do you submit and go, Father, I will do as you ask? That's when you know that you're a disciple. So we choose Him as our Master. We understand that we will follow His wisdom, not ours. And then we have an expectation that along that path we will change. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14-16, through 16, it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So not only is He our Master and we're the servants, not only do we follow Him along this journey and when we get confused, we lean on His wisdom, not ours, but what we ultimately expect to happen along this journey is we begin to look different. We become what He calls holy, which means set apart. You and I no longer look like the rest of the world. I told you before, worst thing anybody can tell a Christian is, wow, I didn't know you were a Christian. Really? That surprises me. If someone ever says that to you, that should be devastating. What you want to know is people will be like, you're kind of weird. Why are you weird? And you go, because of Jesus. That's really what you're looking for. You're really looking for people to look at your life and go, ah, there's just something off about you. I'm not quite sure what it is. Could you explain it to me? Because you just seem to function in a completely different way than not only myself, but the rest of the world. Your logic doesn't make sense to me. Explain that. That's what we want to see happening in our lives. And to be honest, brothers and sisters, if you don't experience that, you'll give up. In fact, some of you are probably sitting frustrated because you've been in these church pews for years and years and years. And the reality is you don't look any different than you did all those years back. And if you're sitting there and that's you, I encourage you to really look in the mirror. And what I'm going to challenge you on is you're not doing the first two. If you're not seeing change in you, it's because you really haven't accepted Him as your Master. And in those tough moments, when you don't have to choose your will or His, you're leaning towards yours, not His. We have to stop praying for God to make our will happen and start to pray that we know His will. So in Exodus, go ahead and flip. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 7. We have a large section to cover today, and so I'm just going to be kind of hitting some different points. And what I'm really going to challenge you guys is to go home and read this all the way through. I'm going to be pointing out some highlights to it that I want you guys to see as a framework. If you haven't been with us, let me set the table for you. So we know Moses. He's a man torn between two worlds. He was born an Israelite, raised an Egyptian. Because of this, he has no people. The Egyptians look at him as second class. The Israelites treat him like he was never one of them. He commits a murder in the defense of an Israelite and because of this runs and hides in the wilderness. And we can tell that he is stricken by this and this comes to define him because he names his child stranger in a foreign land. He has become this no-name shepherd in the middle of nowhere just kind of living. 
you don't know what that feels like, if you hate your job, you know exactly what that feels like every Monday morning. You know that feeling as you're walking into the office going, man, I wish it was Friday, 5 o'clock. That's what Moses felt every single day. Just passing time. No passion, no purpose, no mission. I'm just here. I'm just here. Kind of reminds me, like, you ever have people ask you, like, how's it going? And you're like, it's going. Like, that's the most bummer answer ever. Like, duh, I see you. I know it's going. Is it going well? Is it going bad? What, what's happening? I don't really even know anymore. I'm just here. I just consume air, and I exist. And to be honest, guys, there's a lot of us, we just do this. We just do this. And we get used to it. And God goes, not my people. Not my people. It's not how we live life. So, Moses is encountered by God, and God says, Moses, step out of this. You're my man. I'm going to use you, and you are going to lead my people out of their oppression. You are going to lead my people to freedom. You are going to be an instrument of their deliverance. And Moses goes, not me. <laughs> me? Have you seen me? Have you met me? Not going to be me. And God reminds him, Moses, who do you think made you? Do you think there's anything about you that I don't know? I know you better than you. And if I tell you you're the right man for this, you are the right man for this. And after a little bit of back and forth, Moses concedes and him and his brother Aaron set out on this journey to begin the freedom of the people of Israel. Now where we left off last week was finally after being obedient, finally after obeying God and taking that first step, they encounter Pharaoh and what happens? They go talk to him, and Pharaoh goes, Take them. They're yours. I submit. Free the people. Take all of our money. Have a good day. And that was the end of the book of Exodus, right? You guys obviously haven't been reading. No. Pharaoh goes, No way. I don't acknowledge your God. I don't know who you are. And in fact, if you have stupid ideas like this, it means you people aren't working hard enough. So I'm going to double up their work. So not only does Pharaoh get mad, but then the Israelites look at Moses and Aaron and go, thanks, man. Thanks. You come in here preaching freedom, and all you've gotten for us is twice the workload. Thank you so much for intervening for us. We appreciate you so greatly. And Moses goes to God and is like, what's happening? Was this the game plan? I obey you. I show faith. I do something that was scary to me. And the response is rejection? And God wakes up Moses there and reminds him of what the whole purpose is. So actually jump back with me just a little bit to 628. Oh, I'm sorry, we'll go to uh, 7.1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be like your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. And now Moses was 80 years old, 
and Aaron, 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. So Moses comes to God and goes, Hey man, I did what you asked. It blew up in my face. What's going on? And God kindly reminds Moses, This isn't about you. Moses, at what point in our conversations did you think this was about you being victorious? I told you you're here to be my instrument to free my people. I never promised you that would be easy. In fact, if you're expecting this to be easy, you need to understand, son, we are just beginning. Pharaoh, who is the most powerful man in the world, I am going to harden his heart, and we are going to have a long, drawn-out battle that will make all of Egypt understand who is God and who is not. And it's an important lesson for all of us to understand because modern America has really put a bad lens on Christianity. We really believe this is still all about us. I think each and every one of us in our hearts still has a little bit of us holding on that believes Christianity is about God making you the best you. That really God's greatest glory is found in you being the happiest version of you. I'm sorry, that's not Christianity. God's goal is to glorify the kingdom. God's goal is to accomplish the work of God. God's goal is to glorify Himself, which will help all the people of the kingdom. And if you are one of His children, what you are signing up to be is an instrument of His that He will use to do that work. Sometimes those instruments will be shined a light upon them and they will be glorified. And sometimes they will do dirty jobs that no one sees or acknowledges. But when you sign up to be a servant, that's what you will sign up to do. God, use me in any way that you can. In any way. It's kind of like, did anybody watch a football game last week? I know James didn't. Stickler. I didn't either. It was kind of weird not watching. But I, I, I've always liked football that way. The football team wins. But you know what? We only celebrate a few of the players. Right? It's the quarterback and the running back and the wide receiver who people wear their jerseys, know their names, want their pictures. Celebrate them. The reality, though, there's a bunch of guys who are just pounding for three hours like crazy doing brutal, ugly work, and we don't know their names. If we ran into them in the street, we'd be like, that's a big dude, but we'd never know that they played football. And the reality is, is without their work, the team would never win. Without their work, you'd never see the guy run the touchdown or catch the pass. And in many ways, that's how the kingdom works. All of us have to come together and be willing to do what God asked to be done to get the job done. And what God reminds Moses here is, son, in this moment, I needed you to take a loss. Because you are about to be part of something much bigger than your own personal victories. Now for a second, I want you to put yourself in Moses' shoes and ask yourself if you've really signed up for that. There's some of you that you're only here because you're expecting God to make your life easier. I cannot guarantee you that. He won't guarantee you that. In fact, being His instrument may at times make your life more difficult. Now the key is, is God's going to fill you 
He's going to give you strength. He's going to give you love. He's going to give you power. And He's going to have an intimate relationship with you that should be the greatest thing that you've ever pursued. Because you know what? While Moses in that day may have had one of the most powerful men in the universe mad at him, do you know what he also had? He had a friend in God. He was on face-to-face speaking terms with his Creator. And so what you have to ask in life is why are you here? Are you guys here for an easy life or are you here to encounter God intimately? You have to choose one of those. If you're trying to be a Christian to make life easy, you should just leave. It's not going to work. This is going to be a very disappointing journey to you. But if you are here to encounter God and that is your highest ideal, then you're in the right place. And so Moses and Aaron from this point forward understand they are instruments of God. This isn't about them anymore. And so I want to set up and give you a little bit of context about what you're about to see from Exodus 7 through 10. In Exodus 7 through 10, what you're about to see is one of the greatest physical displays of God's power in Scripture. And that is through what we know as the Ten Plagues. Now in the Ten Plagues, we see God strike upon Egypt these ten huge signs that let people know that He is present. First, He turns all the water and the land into blood. Second, He sends more frogs than you could ever imagine upon the land. And at first that kind of sounds cool, a bunch of frogs. It's not cool. It's not good. He sends so many they are covering the ground. You cannot see the earth. He does the same with gnats. He does the same with flies. Then he strikes down the livestock of the people of Egypt. He then sends sores and boils upon the people of Egypt. He then sends fiery hail from the sky that kills not only crops and people and livestock to show his power. He then sends locusts, which wipe out almost everything in the land. And then in his final two, he doesn't even really use what we would call normal nature, he blocks out all light in complete darkness. And in the most brutal one, finally, in Passover, he takes the firstborn of every Egyptian. In these ten plagues, we see God's unbelievable wrath. And that's really what I want to focus on today, is God's wrath. Because to be honest, we don't really like that topic. I think most of us like God is our friend. God is our buddy. God is our helper. God, my grandfather-like figure that I can go to when life is hard, and he will hold me in his strong arms and comfort me with words of love. Don't get me wrong. There will be moments in your life that God is exactly that. But there is a vengeful, just, and wrathful side of God that makes him the Almighty. And to be honest, in our culture, We almost completely disrespect that. We have lost the fear of God. And when I say the fear of God, I'm not talking about that we are terrified that at any moment He will strike us down and hurt us. What I'm talking about is that you and I look at Him and realize, I have no, no reason to be in His presence. He is pure, holier, and more mighty than I can even imagine. That if he wishes so, in the snap of a finger, he could make me not even exist anymore. 
that we have that kind of awe-inspiring respect of God. I just don't see that anymore. And so we have to look at this wrath and understand it so that one, we're not terrified of it and that we use it to get into a proper relationship with God. So let's look at these. The plagues. The plagues are a result of God fighting gods. There are a few places in the Old Testament where the wrath of God are absolutely terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. I would say the plagues are one, and I would say there are several places throughout where he goes to battle, and he will tell the people of Israel, after you leave this battle, you burn everything. You kill everybody in the town, you kill all the animals, you kill everybody, and you burn it to the ground. And you read that as a Christian, especially if you've read the New Testament first, and you're like, wait, what? Rewind, that could, I must have read that wrong. And you go back and you look at it. No, God's very clear. In this place, I want you to wipe it out completely. Eviscerate it from the face of the earth. Often when God does that, it's because what God is encountering is a culture which goes, you're not God, we are. What you have to remember about Pharaoh is that Pharaoh just wasn't a king. Pharaoh taught, preached, and would kill if you did not believe that he himself was the living God. And so what you see is you almost see God in this whole process giving Pharaoh a chance to go, let my people go. No. Let your people go? Who are you? I'm Pharaoh. I'm God. And you almost see God go, do you really want me to treat you like you're a God? Do you really want to do this? Do you really want to play this game this way? Does anybody ever have a moment like that? Do you ever remember, like, I remember when I was a teenager having a few moments with grown-ups where you'd get into it and they'd be like, oh, so you want to play this like an adult. And they'd almost give you a warning, like, are you sure you really want to play this like an adult? And sometimes when I was stupid, I'd be like, yeah, yeah. And then I quickly learned I did not want to play that like an adult. I should have taken the mercy that comes from being a child. Pharaoh goes, I'm God. And God goes, if you want to act like you're a God, I will treat you with the full out force of what I have. I will hold nothing back and you will see everything that I have. And what we got to be careful about that, that's scary. You don't want to see the full extent of God's power. It is beyond what you can imagine. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy 6, 15. It says, For the Lord your God is in your midst, a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. I love that because it's just clear. Like, he's not going to get upset with you. What's he going to do? He's going to wipe you from the face of the earth. God is a jealous God, and what he does not stand for is anybody saying there are other gods. Now, let me pause there for a second because this tends to rub human beings wrong. When I tell people that God is in for his own glory, is there a little part of you like, that sounds wrong? Right? Like, if I would personally tell you as an individual, my main focus is the glorification of me, you'd be like, that's, that's bad. You shouldn't do that. That's egotistical. 
That's wrong. And I think that's been ingrained in so many of us that when we read that God is about God's own glory, we're like, sounds a little egotistical right there. And it is. But why is it okay for God to be about His glory and us not to be about our own glories? Answer, because we're not perfect. See, when you and I try to glorify ourselves, guess what we ultimately are glorifying? We are ultimately glorifying weakness and sin. If I prop myself up and say, I am the ideal, ultimately I am saying the ideal is sin. Because I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. I'm not all-knowing. I'm not all-good. I mess up. I have evil desires. I have evil actions in my life. If I'm the ideal and I'm glorifying me, I'm glorifying wrong. But when God Almighty glorifies Himself, what is He glorifying? Perfection. He is glorifying everything that is good. He is glorifying perfect, selfless love. He is glorifying everything that is beautiful and wonderful in this world. And so what you and I miss is the glorification of God is a perfect and holy purpose because do you know who it benefits? Everyone. It benefits everyone because God is holy and perfect. So His glorification isn't an ego thing. It's about the acknowledgement of His holiness. And so be very very careful anytime you want to prompt another God against Yahweh God. It's funny, God's very permissive sometimes in Scripture. Do you all remember when Israel comes to him and says they want a king? He doesn't tell them, no, it's not happening. He looks at them and he goes, you know if you have a king, all these bad things are going to happen to you. And he lists them out. And he goes, you know right now I'm your king. I lead you and none of these things happen. And they go, no, we want a king. We want to be like everybody else. And he goes, are you sure? And they say, yes. So what does God do? He gives them a king. In the New Testament, you will find places where it says God gave them over to their sin. What does that mean? It means God realized that the best way to get through to them was to let them run down that path. I can't try to stop you anymore. I'm just going to let you go. You've told me you want this. You're pursuing this. I'm going to let you do it. It's not right. It's not good. But I will let you go there. And in Egypt, what we encounter is they said, we have our own gods, and they can wipe out anybody else. And God said, okay. And in fact, as you look at the ten plagues, what you see is, each of them specifically targeted an Egyptian god that was worshipped and acknowledged for their power. Every plague specifically hit a god in their territory, their realm of control. And so what's the message God's sending with each of these plagues? These gods have no power. Your so-called gods control these things? Where are they right now? How are they handling that situation at this moment? They don't seem to be present, folks. And so God is clearly with unabashed power showing there are no other gods besides Him. 
Now, hold on, because this next point is going to be the scariest one of the whole sermon. But we're going to go into a little valley where you're going to be like, wow, that's dark. And then I'm going to try to pull you out into a place that's a little bit happier. So stay with me for the whole ride. All right? Second thing we should know about the plagues. Sinners deserve the plagues. When I say sinners, don't change that to the Egyptians. Change it to you. In fact, I should have just made it say that. You deserve the plagues. Let me tell you some funny things that happened to me this week. I had about three or four people this week talk to me, and they were like, when I read the plagues, it seems kind of mean. Like, it really feels like God is being brutal here. And so I asked them, I said, question. If I told you the Egyptians and Pharaoh went to hell, would that shock you? Well, they would, no, of course not. I mean, they don't believe in God, so of course they're going to go to hell. Are you okay with that? Yeah, I'm okay with that because they, they chose not to worship God. So we're all okay intellectually with God's character being intact, with him sending sinners to hell for eternity, but we really don't appreciate the way that he punished them here on earth. Do you see how that doesn't really make sense? Like, we're okay with God saying, you didn't follow me, you don't want me, I'm going to send you to hell, and we go, fine with that. That's a good and just and moral thing for God to do. But, you know, killing the firstborn of everybody in Egypt, that seems kind of bad. Do you know why we're saying that? Because, again, we're measuring by the standards of the world and not by the standards of God. And, and, and when I say that, I need you to look at yourself critically. You and I have a worldly system of measuring sin. We tell ourselves certain sins are here and they're big and they're ugly and they're bad. And then we say certain sins are over here and they're, I mean, yeah, they're not the best, but they're not that bad. Right? Has everybody done that justification in their head? I'll be honest with you. I remember when I felt God call me to be a pastor. I remember talking to my brother. And I was like, do you realize, like, I got to follow all the rules now. Like, all of them. And we were talking about it, he's like, I mean, technically, Luke, like, we should all be following all the rules all the time. And I'm like, that's a good point. That's true. That is, that is a good point. But we do think that way, right? We do sometimes read scripture and be like, well, that's like for the superstar Christians. That's like for the overachievers right? I'm just kind of that back row guy who's barely in the club. I don't need to listen to that one. That one's not a big deal. Here's the reality. Sin is sin. Sin is sin, and if we're sinners, we are sinners. And I know we don't like to say this, and we don't like to agree to this, but once we've sinned, we're in the same pile of people as Jeffrey Dahmer and Hitler and every other ugly human being who's ever existed. We are sinners. Now, yes, are there different effects to people's sins? Yes. There are certain sins in our lives that the ripple effects and the causes or the, the effects of them will be smaller and more contained and easier to repair. And there are other sins that they're going to be catastrophic in the number of people they impact and how badly they wound them and they hurt them. And God does pay attention to that. But ultimately, what all of us have to acknowledge is any sin means 
I'm a sinner. Any sin means I deserve death. And in fact, the greatest sin of all is what? The greatest sin of all is for us to not even acknowledge that God the Father exists and to worship Him and to love Him and to serve Him. Do we truly believe that? Do we truly, truly believe that in our hearts? Because you know what's funny? Is I think if we were to talk about this story and it wasn't just the nation of Israel, but I said, hey, here's a nation of murderers and pedophiles and God wiped out their firstborn. I think we'd all go, yes, good. But if I go, this is a nation of unbelievers that don't believe God exists or is even real and he wiped out their firstborn, you go, well, that seems harsh. What did you just say? You just said the non-belief in God is a smaller crime than all those other things. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from the world. It doesn't come from Him. The greatest crime in our lives, the greatest sin, is the pride that comes from not believing that we need to treat our God, our Father, as God the Father. And we need to acknowledge that. Because to be honest, do you know how often that sin creeps up? Every day be more honest, every minute, every hour. We are constantly pulled to be in rebellion against God. And the biggest sin that He pulls at is be your own God. Do what you want. Do what makes you feel good. And so what we need to acknowledge about the plagues is, brutal as they are, they're completely deserved. They're completely and utterly deserved. Look what it says in Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God will set things right. God will collect on debts. God will right every wrong. And that means there is a side of God that is wrathful and vengeful. In this story, it is the Egyptians who are catching that. They are seeing the full force and brutality of that vengeance. I want you to look at this one in uh, Amos 5.18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or he went into his house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. It is not the day of the, is not the day of Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it. This passage comes from Amos talking to the Israelites and all of them have been saying, we can't wait for the day of the Lord. We can't wait for the day of the Lord. Oh, when will the day of the Lord come? And Amos looks at him and goes, you do not want the day of the Lord to come right now. If the day of the Lord came now, if God showed up now to make right what is wrong, you guys would not be on the right end of that. If the day of the Lord happened today, Israel, you would not be standing next to God, you would be standing opposed to Him. And what you imagine to be light, what you imagine to be joy, instead would be darkness and would be pain, because you would be standing on the opposite end. And to be honest, brothers and sisters, we need to realize this more. You know where I always realize this? 
when I'm reading about Jesus and the Pharisees. I always assume when I'm reading those stories that I would be one of the disciples and I'd be hanging out with Jesus. Do you know what the honest to goodness truth probably is? I'd probably be a Pharisee. We always have this self-biasness to make ourselves just a little bit cleaner, a little bit better, a little bit holier than we actually are. And what we really truly need to ask ourselves is where is the sin in our lives that we are just letting be there? If God came today to make right what is wrong and to call into account everything that is sin, where would you stand? The Israelites thought they were good and Amos told them you would not be good. You're praying for this day to come and you are not right with God. You should not be praying for it yet. You better get right with your Lord before that day shows up. All of us need to think about that. Now, let me balance this a little bit because I know it's dark. I'm not saying that there's not amazing goodness once you go God's way. In fact, that's the beauty of God is that some people motivate with carrot, some people motivate with stick. God uses both. God's like, if you are against me, if you glorify sin, you will feel my wrath and my wrath is unlike anything you could imagine. But if you will join me, if you will let me love you, if you will be my child, not only will I exclude all that wrath, but I will fill you with love and power and mercy and abundance to a level you can't even imagine. Not only will I take away all the negative, I will give you more positive than you could ever dream of. And yet there's still some of us, even with that offer, go, no, I'm good, I'll stay over here. And so what I want to make sure you understand is, is that each and every one of us has to be real about who we are. You and I, without God, deserve hell. Every one of us. And that's by the standards of God, not the standards of man. All of us are okay with people like Hitler going to hell. We're not okay with those people that we go, well, they're good people. He's a good guy. If you don't acknowledge God the Father as your Creator and Lord, you are not a good guy. Not according to Him. And frankly, that's the only standard that matters. So in this case, we see the plagues being so brutal for two reasons. One, the Egyptians had set themselves up as gods, and God was going to prove to them there was only one God. And second, because of the nature of sin in their culture, God came at them, and they deserved it. But I'll leave you with one last point. God's wrath is victory for God's people. So there's a beautiful thing that happens to God's wrath when we no longer are his enemy, but we now are his children. And you see that beautifully throughout the plagues. In the plagues, you have the land of Goshen, which the Israelites live in, and you have the rest of Egypt. And as each of these plagues strike, you see the land of Goshen being untouched and protected by God, and you see the land of Egypt and unbelievable pain and misery. Why? Because this group of people, they weren't better, they weren't 
talented, they weren't richer, they weren't handsomer, but they were more humble and had acknowledged God as their father. And because of that, this wrath of God that can be such a scary and terrifying force no longer was scary to them. Now, it was just. Now this wrath was the instrument of their freedom. Now this wrath that could have been put upon them was now something that was going to bring justice to all the years of pain they had gone through and was going to be the very instrument that was going to set them free. And so, brothers and sisters, what we have to acknowledge about God's wrath is we don't want it to go away. We just want it to be on the right side of it. We just want to be on the right side of it. And so I ask you, where do you stand? Where are you with Him? Each and every one of us has to be real about that question. And the ways that we get to the proper place in that is one, by looking in the mirror and understanding who we are, and two, looking up to heaven and understanding who He is. In this moment, all of Egypt was seeing that Yahweh was God. At the burning bush, Moses saw Yahweh was God. Where in your life have you seen that Yahweh is God? God's wrath will be seen one day by you. The question is, is what side will you be on? When the day of the Lord comes, will it be a day of blessing to you? Because it will be the light of God coming into your life to wash away all that darkness that has plagued you for your whole life? Or will you be that darkness that He pushes out? That is the free choice that each and every one of us gets to make. And it's what's full display in the plagues of Israel. Next week, what we will discuss is we will look at the last of the plagues, the Passover, and the death of the firstborn. This plague is so beautifully constructed by God because it not only shows His unbelievable power in this moment, but it foreshadows what Christ does for us in our spiritual lives. And so I want to make sure we take time apart from that to really dig in specifically to what happens during the Passover and the message that God is giving to us in it. I'm ask Brother Joe to come forward and we're going to go into our time of prayer. I encourage you, go to God and lay at His feet all the sin in your heart. If there is any of it you've been holding on to and keeping Him at arm's length from, you lay that out there for Him. You let Him take that and you let Him bring light in to replace it. Let's go to God to pray.